Well, good morning, everybody. It's an absolute honor and a privilege to have you with us today as we continue our, our series, uh, Take Off, our second last message of our series, Take Off. Someone asked me this morning what happened to my haircut and my hairstyle, and uh, yesterday I got a new hair clipper, and uh, apparently it's a new, uh, a new thing, and you can adjust it accordingly. Well, I tried, and all of a sudden, it was a bald patch next to my bald patch, uh, which made my young son standing right next to me to crack up laughing in my face which attracted the attention of my older son who came running with encouragement to the bathroom. And I said, oh man, I don't know what I've done. I have to shave it all off. And, and, um, and, and he looked at me and says, oh, it's good. It's horrible. I said, no, 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 no. What a second there. Is it good or is it horrible? He said to me, you've done a good job shaving but you look horrible. <laughs> At least he complimented my hairdressing skills, so you know my next job gonna be in the hair salon. But for today, I'm gonna pretend to be a preacher, and I'm gonna take you uh, through the second last uh, message of our series, Take Off. And the idea, the premise, and the promise of this series that I've prayed for for at least a year to be able to share with you is this, that you and I, as followers of Jesus, can live on a different plane. You and I, as followers of Jesus, I believe this with every fiber of my being. I believe that Christians can live on a supernatural realm, not normally like everybody else, is struggling through life, trying to do what only God can do through people. And we said that living in the Spirit, or by the power of the Spirit, compared to living in our human efforts or capacity, is like walking on a plane compared to being on a plane. Walking is your natural capability, is your own performance. You can work really hard and you can be fit and you can travel as far as you could, but you can't fly no matter how good you are. But you can step in a, in, in a huge machine and it will take you beyond the realm of gravity and you'll be able to travel places that you could never walk to. And I believe the scripture, particularly the New Testament, indicates to us that as Christians, we seriously can fly with God's capacity, then we can whinge about our inability to live a life that is honoring to God, because that is impossible in our own abilities. You see, the Christian life was never intended to be lived by your capacity. You see, I am so sad that the type of Christianity that you and I were given is a transactional Christianity. So you are taught what we call, you know, the gospel. If you're not a Christian, we tell you about Jesus died on a cross and you can come into your life and you can be forgiven and you go out and become a person that would live with God forever. And that is partially true. 
It is not the gospel. And as long as I live, I will say this is not the gospel. It's the Western version of Christianity. The gospel ultimately is that God Almighty has made a way to come and recreate you. The idea is that when Jesus comes into your life, you actually have the very DNA of Christ himself. That's why the Christian life cannot be lived by your normal and my normal performance and fleshly ability or natural abilities. It is an utter failure. You cannot live the DNA of God on your own natural abilities. So, it takes the Holy Spirit of God to enable us to live the life that every Christian is called to live. And we spoke about it last week, that in order for you and I to experience the Holy Spirit, He comes to indwell us. And we read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He also comes to fill us. That is to control our lives. And we, we spoke about that in Ephesians chapter 5 last week. And I promise that today and next week we'll talk about the Spirit overflowing through you and I. He overflows with the characteristics of Jesus, which we call the fruit of the Spirit. And He over, overflows through us with the competencies of Jesus, which we call the gifts of the Spirit. I want you to know that you do not have to struggle your way to show forth the character of Christ or to do the work of Christ. Is it any wonder that we sometimes feel so stuck in our Christianity, so miserable that we look at other people who are not living with God and we say, they are lucky. They don't have as much pressure. They don't experience as much guilt. They don't have as much tension because we're struggling to live the life that God intends us to live. And it is rightly so. You are setting yourself up for failure if you try to live the spiritual life with your own resources. God never wanted that burden to be yours. Jesus said, my yoke or my burden is easy. How could that be? How could it be light and easy if we're expected to live a supernatural life? Because He's carrying the load. He's investing in you to live the life that He's always desired for you and I. But we complicate things when we try to live it by our own strength. Not by strength, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And even in the Old Testament, it teaches us that. So some Christians... Early, early Christians who accepted Jesus as a Lord and Savior and were reborn by the Spirit of God, they were living in a region of Galatia and they were predominantly non-Jews. That means they were Gentiles like you and I who don't have Jewish heritage. And they started an amazing walk with God. And Paul writes to them around mid-50s AD and he says to them, why after you began your walk in the Spirit, that means you've been born again and given the power of the Holy Spirit to abide in you and create a new nature in you. How come after you started in the Spirit, you now want to live in the flesh? He speaks of two realms that we spoke about before. The realm of the flesh and realm of the Spirit. Realm of the flesh, you can call it walking. 
It's what you are capable of doing without the supernatural empowerment of God's Spirit. It's your natural old fallen nature. It's who you are just as you are. And he says, but why did you get away from living by the Spirit, which living the way God created you to be? After you started in the Spirit, how do you think you're going to go on in your abilities and performances and strengths and struggles and hard work? He didn't want them to live that crippled lifestyle. And the whole entire uh, book of Galatians, Paul is... uh, arguing against false teachers that appear in Galatians chapter 1 who are teaching the people to live by the law, in other words, to live by Jewish performances, regulations, and rules. He says, don't do that because it's going to make you slave regardless of your best intentions, regardless of your diligent hard work, living by the flesh, living in your own abilities, you will eventually end up showing the works of the Spirit. Of the, of the flesh. You're going to live a life that's slavery to sin because your fallen nature always inclined to sin. It's like when you have a flat tire, a little bit flat. Always your car is skewing that way, inclined to skew that way. And when you live by fallen nature, you're always skewing towards sin and towards displeasing God. So Paul gives them the ultimate example And the freedom that comes from living by the Spirit says, I know what you want. I know that you want to display the character of Jesus. I know that that's what your internal desire is. And I want to tell you, that is the fruit of the Spirit. You are given that supernaturally. So look with me to what Paul writes to them in Galatians chapter 5 and verses 22 and 23. Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You probably heard that these are the cluster of the fruit of the Spirit. How many people have seen dates that, you know, palm trees with dates? Have anybody seen dates, you know, actually not through pictures, but have you seen dates, palm trees and dates? Anybody? Huh? Yeah, few? You can see that coming cluster, don't they? The tree doesn't produce one little date. It comes in cluster. And this is exactly why we see here it says the fruit, not the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit is a cluster of traits, of characteristics that resemble and manifest the character traits of Jesus. And you get them as a deposit in your life when you accept Jesus. You get the entire DNA. You don't get today love, tomorrow it gives you joy, after three years it gives you peace, ten years later it gives you kindness. It's like, oh my goodness, it takes eternity to have the fruit of the Spirit. But He actually deposits the seed that has the capacity to give you the cluster of Christ characteristics all at once. It's the fruit of the Spirit. You can't choose, pick and choose what you like. Secondly, you notice that he says earlier in that chapter, he contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Why? 
Because works, it's something that you do. Fruit, it's something that you bear. It happens to you, not happens through you. You know, no tree says, I'm going to produce this particular fruit today. The seed's life is produced, and the branches, all they can do is to bear the fruit that's produced. It's not manufactured. It's given to you freely. It's supernatural. You can't do it. You can't manufacture it. It comes to you as a free gift. The very DNA and character traits and attitudes of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Fruit is also very important for us to know that it's not something that is just supernatural. Like every other fruit, it's gradual and it's conditional. A farmer would go out and would sow lots of seed. Some of them will bear fruit, others won't. And those that bear fruit, bear fruit gradually. Not all of a sudden a seed becomes a tree and a tree becomes an orchard. It's the, it takes time. And the same thing with you and I. Even though God deposited the DNA of Christ in your life and in my life, it gradually grows to reveal Jesus in us. It's not like that. We all want three-minute noodles of Jesus Christ's likeness in us. It just doesn't happen. And you know what we do? We start saying, maybe I didn't receive the Holy Spirit. Maybe I didn't really repent. Maybe I'm stuffed spiritually. Maybe I'm not called to live the life. Maybe Christ's likeness is not really for me. I'm too messed up. I'm too stuffed up. I sin too much. I'm full of flaws. Other people think I'm an idiot. I don't have resources. And God is saying it comes to you supernaturally, but also comes through you gradually. It will take time. For Christ to be fully manifested in your life, it's a lifelong process. But it's also condition. There must be part of your participation for the fruit of the Spirit to be manifested in you. Do you know that every single trait that Paul mentions here in Galatians chapter 5, Elsewhere in the New Testament is a command. How funny is that? Have you ever contemplated that truth? Every single fruit of the Spirit elsewhere is a command. Let me give you just a few examples to help you see that we are commanded to live out the very traits and very fruit that comes supernaturally through the Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit speaks of your identity, of who you already are, but the command speaks of your calling, who you must become. And it's a dilemma. It's who you already are, that's what the fruit of the Spirit is, and what you must become is what you commanded, what you called to be. So let me give you a few examples. The first one, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Then in John chapter 13 and, and verse 34, it says, A new command I give you, love one another. Is it a command or is it a trait? By the way, the word love here comes from a, a Greek word, akape, which is the highest level of love. It's not just family, reciprocal love. It's sacrificial love. It's the very love of Jesus, which he commands us to have. 
Look at the second fruit of the Spirit. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Then in Philippians chapter 4 verses 1 and again in verse 4, it says rejoice, which is a command in the Lord. When? Always. I will say it again, rejoice. Say yes. You know, we can say, well, I have the Holy Spirit and He should manifest joy in my life, but you're not doing anything about it when you're commanded to rejoice. When? Always. Does that even make sense? Because you and I are so familiar with the idea of rejoicing when things are going well, but we do not know how to rejoice when things are going our way. So guess what we do? We try to manipulate our environments in order that we create something that makes us happy all the time. That's a myth, my friends. You've lived long enough to know that that's an absolute lie of the enemy. You cannot control your environment to create healthy and pleasurable things all the time. Because we live on this side of eternity and circumstances will come and go and tough times and good times come and go. You cannot pursue happiness based on the happenings of a circumstantial life. But you can rejoice always despite of your circumstances. How? It's supernatural. You just got to take the hand of God's joy instead of the hand of the enemy's misery. You choose which hand you take. And I choose every morning and every moment of every day which hand I take. It's the hand of the Lord telling you, come rejoice with me. In fact, Jesus says to his disciple, my joy I give to you. Just exactly like he said, my peace I give to you. He actually said, uh, he said that my peace may be in you. The very, uh, sorry, the joy may be in you. The very joy that Jesus experienced, he wanted you and I to experience. And did Jesus have it easy? You're living in La La Land. He had it tougher than any of us put together. He was always considered to be the son of illegitimate marriage. He was considered to be Belzebub, which is uh, basically the, 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 uh, the, the enemy, the, the, uh, the, um, the prince of, of darkness. He was harassed, he was troubled, he was misunderstood, he was betrayed. It says that he was anointed with the oil of joy, even though he was a man of sorrow. You and I can rejoice despite of our feelings. You can rejoice despite of your feelings. You can choose your emotions to cripple you, or you can ask the enablement of God's Spirit to empower you to walk in joy, not misery. Then he says, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. Yet, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 13, it says, live in peace. That's a command, friends. And again, in, uh, in Philippians chapter 4 and I think verse 6, it says, be anxious for nothing. That means it's a command, not only a supernatural gift, why? Because you have peace. That's supernatural. But you can live in peace. That's your cooperation. You have peace. That's God's DNA in you. You activate that peace through obedience. That's your participation. That's your calling. We have an identity 
and we have a calling. And if you align your identity to your calling, we call that you're living your possibility. What God, when God closes his eyes at night, if he ever does, he dreams of your possibility to be more like Jesus. So, if it is supernatural, and if it is a command, and we genuinely want to live that out, how come when you and I look in the mirror, it doesn't come apparent to us that we're experiencing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control and the like? Why? Why doesn't it appear to our friends? Why the Jesus me doesn't always come out? Why the spirit-enabled nature that you and I have sometimes seems to be overwhelmed in our day-to-day activity? The reality is this. In Galatians chapter 5, a couple of verses earlier, Paul gives us the secret. Verses 16, it says, So I say to you, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. What I want to remind you, and you already know that, because you experience that, because you see and observe other Christians live in that way. We are living in conflict, friends. You have God's nature on the inside of you, and you desire sincerely to live that character of Christ. I know that about you. I know that about every follower of Jesus. You want to live like Christ. But you also struggle with something else on the inside of you, and that's your fallen nature. That's who you are without the enablement of your spirit. Have you ever wondered, why on earth am I not living the way I really want to? You ought to read Romans chapter 7, where Paul says, every time I want to do good, evil is present before me. It is no longer I who do the evil, but sin. That means my old nature that's on the inside of me. That does that. And if you walk, if you allow the Spirit of God to control that nature more frequently, you'll be able to reflect Jesus more consistently. But it is a battle. You can't feel down on yourself. You can't feel rejected and despised because you're not revealing Jesus 24-7. It is a gradual process. You've got to give yourself a break. Because your enemy wants to sabotage your joy and your strength because he wants to make you guilty that you're unable to live that life which your heavenly Father wants to give you and wants to see you experience daily. We have flesh that is present until the day Jesus comes again. But the more we feed our new nature, the more it will rise up and overpower our sinful nature. It's a struggle, and it's tiring. But we need to walk. Don't you love the word he says, walk by the Spirit? Some of us want to run. Some of of us just don't want to walk. We don't want slow progress. We just want to go full on. 
But God says, walk, I understand. Walk by the Spirit step by step. It's okay. I'm patient with you. I'm not annoyed with you. Walk by the Spirit. But you know what? God doesn't want you to take a walk individually. He wants you to take a walk collectively with his family. That's why Jesus, when he called, he called the disciples to be with him, not just one disciple at a time. Why is that? Because you can never live out your possibility by yourself. I have read and heard and observed so many people limit our spiritual walk to individualism because that's our culture, that's not our book. So when you talk about walking in the Spirit, it says, you know, you do this and you do that and you do this and you do that. Friends, it's not an individual effort. Is it any wonder we keep, we keep collapsing when it's an individual effort? That's why I want to share with you as I finish off three things that the Spirit will do in you as you walk with other people to discover your possibility. Number one is the Word. Look at what the Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, But we all, with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the Spirit of the Lord is going to transform you. When? When you look in the mirror of, the, of God's Word. When you see in God's Word who you are. Because you and I know that we're often reminded of who we are in the flesh. Our shortcomings, our wounded hearts, our fears, our deficiencies, our struggles, our mistakes, our sins. We're always reminded of that. David says that my sins are ever before me. And when you dwell on your mistakes, when you dwell on your shortcomings, when you dwell on your mess up, when you dwell on your old nature, guess what? That's all you see about you. And God wants to show you a, new, a different mirror. You are not the sum totals of your stuff ups. He wants to show you a new mirror that show you a new reality of who you really are. Because you are a little Jesus according to God's word. Because he's giving you his love, his joy, his peace, his kindness, his selflessness, his wisdom. You are a little Jesus in the making. The more you stare at the mirror of your fallen nature, the more you believe you're a stuffed up Christian for the rest of your life. And what you see will determine what you do. If you see yourself as a musician, you keep practicing being a musician. If you yourself as an athlete, you'll continue to practice being an athlete. You, you, whatever you see yourself to be, you will live that out. So imagine if you looked in the mirror of the word every day. Imagine if God reminded you every day who you really are. Not what the sum total of your failures say you are. The second thing that we need in order to live out our possibility, the face. 
You see, one of the biggest things that I want to share with you, and it's scientifically proven, that you do not know who you are until other people show you who you are. Look at this. It comes from a book called Rare Leadership that has blown my mind. I read it a couple of years ago, and it's incredible. It's speaking about neuroscientists that discovered that our identity center is made out of mirror neurons. Look at this particular quote. It says, the qualities of Christ have been born in us through the Holy Spirit. They are present but dormant and ready to be seen and called out. It occurred to me, to the writer, that be like is a great way to describe the mirror neurons in the brain's identity center. Mirror neurons can't look at themselves. Our identity center can only look at others and activate the neurons that reflect what they see. That, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. In fact, they said that in the identity center, it looks like two faces looking at each other. You cannot, you cannot by yourself discover who you are in Christ until you see it in someone's eyes. You see, from a young age, you are who you see yourself in the eye of a significant other. You have built your identity based on what significant others have t told you that you are. So in order to sustain this new nature, in order to sustain this new identity, you need to see it in someone else's eyes, in someone else's face. You need to see other Jesus-like people that tell you who you're capable of being. The third thing and last thing, it says the group. The same, the, the same research that they've done says this. It says your core identity flows out of your answer to the question, who are my people? Not who am I, who are my people? Understanding which group we belong to help us to remember who we are and how it is like us to act. That's the command bit. Who you are is your identity. How to act is the command that completes the cycle of you living out your possibility. We all need people in our lives who know us well enough to recognize when we are starting to slip behind our masks and who can comfort us when we get triggered. Members of an identity group can say, this isn't like you, or it makes sense that this is bothering you because it's just like you to care about something like that. You see, when you are part of a transparent relationship, you get to see what it's like to live like Jesus. You get to be encouraged when you slip up and you get to be challenged when you put your mask on. You see, Christians, we're so scared of transparent relationships because we're taught to protect our reputation over our character. So many of us don't believe that you need to be in a relationship to follow Jesus. It's a very individualistic type of approach. Others of us think that the relationship is very limited to a Sunday service. You say hello to somebody before you sit down and you say goodbye to somebody as you walk out. Others of us are part of superficial relationships where we're still protecting our reputation when we meet with other people or we build our knowledge base. And all of that is good. 
maybe even part of a group that is very active in a church environments or in volunteering capacity or in ministry opportunities, and that's also very good. But until you become part of a transparent environment where you're humble enough, where you're transparent enough, and where you take responsibilities for your action, you will never live out your God-given possibility. You need to be humble enough to share. Jared was talking to me about something they do in YWAM. It's called openness and brokenness. They have sessions together where they are open with one another about what's going on in their lives. He says they even confess sins. Fancy that. And they are broken and they walk in their brokenness, the character of Christ. What's your relationships like? Have you believed the myth that you can be a strong follower of Jesus on your own? Let me tell you, we wish it was. For an introvert like me, I wish it was. For somebody that is grown in a culture where you have to protect your reputation, I wish it was. But it's not. And your testimony, your observations, your experiences in life will tell you that people that know the most, people that do the most, can harbor the worst character traits on the inside. And their reputation and their character are two separate miles apart. And we've heard story after story of people who have been even in ministry whose old nature took over the new nature and they lived a life that was wayward and doubled life. I may have told you about a particular preacher that was coming to a church where we had a conference. Some pastor that was very successful in the U.S., his church, I think, was 12,000 people. On Monday night, they have a prayer gathering of 1,000 people. Fancy that. He was outspoken about the stuff, the mess that's in the society, and particularly about overt sins that were becoming very obvious in the area where he lived. And suddenly, he got exposed. This guy, reputable, amazing following, incredible impact, was having an extramarital affair with his male masseur for three years. How? Does he read the Bible? Absolutely. Does he teach the Bible? Absolutely. Is God blessing his ministry? Absolutely. So how? How can you have this type of life in front of people and this type of life behind the scenes? Susie picked up a book written by his wife just a few weeks ago called Why I Stay. And in it, she retells a story uh, that she found in his suit pockets just a few months uh, ago before she wrote that. She found in his suit, in her, in his suit pockets two letters uh, from congregational members. The letters were sent to him two months before he was found out. And in those letters... She, it's almost like a movie written backwards. It's, it's, it's as if you've seen the occurrences and you're writing about them, but they were prophetic letters. And in it, in the letters, the lady speaks about it very specifically. They say there is deception. They told the pastor there is deception in the church. There is double life 
and, there is, and, and, and they wrote, secrets will not be a secret for much longer. So his wife, rightly so, asked, she said to him, weren't you scared when you read those letters? Weren't you scared that they will come to pass and you will be exposed? And you know what he said to her? Something should make you and I cry when we don't have transparent relationships. I don't mean just relationships where you're protecting your reputation. Real, humble, honest, God-honoring relationships. You know what he said to her? He said, it did not cross my mind that it was about me. It did not cross my mind that it was about me. You know, deception breeds deception. Darkness breeds darkness. Hiding secrets will hide more secrets. And the day will come because God loves you too much. He's not going to let that to go on forever. You could live the way you want. You could build an incredible reputation. You could be as impacting as you want. But unless you live a transparent relationship where you're willing to be humble, where you're willing to be challenged, where you're willing to actually take responsibility and do life differently, you may end up in a place you never, ever intended. You know why did he get in this mess? Because as a young kid, his father's business partner abused him. And when he was a teenager, he dabbled in extra sexual activities. And despite of how great he was and how far in the faith he became, and he was old man, wasn't a young man. He had adult kids. And it carried on with him for years. And I read a quote for him. Sin will get you to pay more than you've ever expected. But on the other hand, let me finish off by a little story and little email that I received this week from a member of our congregation that speaks of how God can transform you and I. That's what she wrote. How did my life take such a, long, a wrong turn? Who was I? Who had we become? In my childhood dreams, I certainly never imagined this reality would be my life. I felt an unconsuming emptiness in my heart, which ran much deeper than anything I had ever felt before. It was loneliness. It was rejection. It was humiliation. It was betrayal. It was desperation. It was pain. I found myself anxious, unable to breathe. Whatever it was, I knew enough to sense it was eating away my soul. Then darkness came and along with it a numbness of mind, body, and soul. My life was spiraling and continued to spiral out of com control. Further deeper into the very heart of darkness, depression, and fear set in. I had found a new friend, so it seems. I had the enemy comforting and telling me lies morning, noon, and at night, 24-7. He was now invested in me. He would say, this is all your fault. You are not worthy of being loved. You are a failure. You should be ashamed. You don't matter anymore. Then the day finally came when darkness turned to nothing. All I wanted was to be freed from the torment and from the pain. I almost succeeded. I stood on the threshold of losing everything that matters most in the world to me, and that was my family. Deep in my soul, there was a flickering of light of hope. What woke me up 
one night was I had a de- I declared in my dream in my sleep I choose God. Skipping a little down, it says I kept saying over and over again, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, help me. I cannot do this without you anymore." I really wasn't sure what happened that night, but the next day I had a choice to make: would I flee or would I fight? The enemy was not going to take me or anyone that I love. Later on it says, I read beautiful passages daily, which would fortify my resolve and make me stronger each day. I read about love, about repentance, about forgiveness. And this is where the enemy drew me back. I couldn't really forgive. I think I wanted to forgive. Why wouldn't I be able to forgive? The battle in my mind continued. The enemy had found the wound not yet healed. He found the window back into my soul. He kept the anger and the spirit of unforgiveness alive in me. He fueled it daily. I began feeling bitter and resentful. I was being crippled by the spirit of self-pity. He wanted to keep destroying what had started. I began praying more and more, talking to God from the time I woke up to the time I closed my eyes, in the shower, in the car, in the laundry, wherever and whenever. I met with a trusted woman from this church and I didn't intend to tell her my real story. I wanted help, but I wasn't prepared to be vulnerable. I was ashamed, but somehow I find myself sharing my secrets that I hadn't disclosed to anyone before. I don't know how or why I did it, but healing began. I think it was my confession that opened the doors to my healing. A few weeks after I read the following, Forgiveness is the key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred. And there it was. In the plain black and white, it was me. I was the problem. I was still living for me. I wasn't living for God's will. I was living selfishly and wallowing in my self-pity. The same week, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. God needs to break my old self layer by layer, and I can see Him working on me daily. I learned that I am the one that needs to let go of the past. I need to forgive myself before I could forgive others. Forgiveness was healing. Last week, Peter asked to pe- people to come forward and surrender all, the, all to the Holy Spirit. I felt the battle. I knew in my heart it was what I needed to do. Jesus had already done so much for my life. This was my opportunity to show my obedience to Him. When the time came, I was paralyzed with fear, embarrassment. My legs felt like they were being weighed down by two concrete pillars. My heart was pounding. Then the room went silent, and I only saw Peter standing in the front, way, way in front of me. The walk seemed to last forever. I was up there. I was shaking with happiness. While standing there, I got it. My life wasn't going forward because I was still living for me. And that moment, I released my old self. I died. The happiness I felt since that day is nothing short of a miracle. My life isn't fixed, but I can see sunshine. I can hear the birds stinging. I have joy in my heart. I now want that moment of darkness in my life to not be a GPS for pain and suffering, but rather a bookmark in my life which shows where I started and how far I have come in my walk with God. Wouldn't you want to be that person? Well, today, I'm not inviting anyone forward, but in your own seat, you can seek 
and God Almighty can enable you to live the life that He intends for you. Let's be upstanding.